Hi, welcome to another episode on the Jero Psychology Podcast, where we talk about all things Jero. I'm your host, Lindsay Jacobs. Each episode, I have a guest and we talk about a topic that's relevant to the field of Jero Psychology. On this episode, I talk with Dr. Nancy Bahana about clinical Jero Psychology on an international stage. Dr. Nancy Bahana is a clinical geropsychologist and professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland, and she's co-director of the University of Queensland Aging Mind Initiative, providing a focal point for clinical translational aging-related research at the University of Queensland. She has an international reputation in the area of geriatric mental health, particularly in late-life anxiety and driving in later life. Nancy was elected a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia in 2014. Originally from the United States, Nancy was awarded her BA from Princeton University in 1987 and her PhD from Case Western Reserve University in 1992. She's an avid bird watcher and a keen traveler, and I'm so excited to have Nancy on the episode today. Nancy, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm really excited to have you. Thank you for having me. First, I thought we should get started just by talking a little bit about how you got interested in geropsychology or more broadly, how you got interested in working with older adults. Well, I did my uh, PhD work at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio. And I think at that time, I just thought I was going to be just a clinical psychologist with an interest in mainly uh, people in midlife. But when I did my internship at the Sepulveda VA, uh, I had a supervisor and mentor, Steve Ganzel, and I saw him working as a neuropsychologist with older adults, and I was just captivated. (laughs) It was a wonderful blend of deep knowledge of medical issues and neuropsychological issues, but also he so understood the context of that older person. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately said, I think I want to do this. And what do I have to do? And so on my internship, I took a lot of neuropsychological cases and did that series of associated rotation. And then I chose to do a one-year postdoc up at the Palo Alto VA, working with Dolores Gallagher-Thompson and Larry Thompson and Tony Zeiss and a whole raft of people that were so committed to clinical geropsychology. And I think what I took most from that placement was their commitment to service to the wider community. Mm. And then I went and did a two-year Gero Neuro postdoc down in LA. And uh, really there, my main supervisor, Wilfred Van Gorp, uh, taught me balance. You know, I think that when you're, especially when you're working across neuropsychology and clinical psychology, you can get really caught up in the caseload. Mm-hmm. And Wilfred was always really careful to have balance. And so This whole group of uh, mentors and amazing clinical experiences, I think, shaped me as a clinical geropsychologist. 
Mm-hmm. You had those neuropsychology clinical placements and rotations as well, but primarily with the with the focus on older adults. So you were really getting into the gero neuro realm, and it sounds like it was that sort of the gero psychology mentality, the focus on the whole person that really captivated you. Yes. And I think that to this day, I'm never bored with working in the geropsychology realm because I I have a lot of wide range of interests. And uh, certainly as a researcher, I do a lot of research in different areas. But the key to everything, my clinical practice, my teaching, my research is always older adults and how we can really work with older adults to help their functioning in the world and help them reach the goals that they want to reach. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure about our listeners, but I know whenever I hear your name, one of the topics that comes to mind that I think your name is associated with in the field is international clinical geropsychology and where we're going on an international stage. And I'm curious, what led to your interest in this topic? Well, the main thing that led to my interest in this topic is a decision in 1997 to um, move for what I thought was only three years uh, to New Zealand to take up a teaching position at Massey University in Palmerston North, which is on the North Island of New Zealand. And my husband and I had visited New Zealand uh, on our honeymoon and really uh, love the country. And I I've thought, heard it's wow. beautiful. <laughs> oh, it's super beautiful. It has like penguins and, you know, amazing bird life and uh-huh. really super, super nice people. And, uh, you know, it was really interesting is one of the first things I had to do was demonstrate a mini mental state examination to our students. And so I held up a pen uh, in the mini mental state and I said, you know, what is this to the patient? And the patient said, oh, it's a biro. And I said <laughs> to myself, mm, not sure what that is. And I could hear the students laughing behind the one-way glass. And I, I said, well, what's another name for this? And the gentleman said, oh, it's a pen. But right there, you know, it, it kind of said to me, ah, oh, there's these subtle differences, you know, internationally. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. But yet there were so many similarities, you know, people around the world, Um, use the Wexler tests. They're basically, you know, doing all of the forms of therapy that we're familiar with in the United States. But there are subtle differences in terms of the way that healthcare systems are organized, the way that retirement or lack of retirement is viewed in other countries. So for example, in Australia, where I live now, there is no mandatory retirement. And in Germany, for the most part, Almost all people retire at the age of 65. Wow. So there's huge uh, international variation and it, it definitely affects practice. And you do have to be across that. The other thing, of course, being in both New Zealand and then in 2000, I moved to Australia, is our vibrant indigenous populations in both of those countries and really having to understand how to be culturally safe with those populations has also sort of broaden my view of of diversity in practice. Wow, that's really interesting. So you've been sort of thinking about clinical geropsychology on an international stage for a good while now, dating back to the 1990s, it sounds like. Yes. 
what does the field of clinical geropsychology look like on an international stage? So you, sh- you shared a little bit about how in a lot of countries they're using the same practices that we are in the United States. Well, I think that, you know, you could say that there's practice and there's training. And so both of those are really affected by how is geropsychology viewed as a specialty, right? So is it recognized as a subspecialty within broader clinical practice? Mm -hmm. And that really differs from country to country. And just like in the United States, it hasn't been that long that we've had ABAP specialization in um, geropsychology. So uh, for example, my colleagues in Canada, and it's not just sort of psychology, my colleagues in Canada in psychiatry worked for years to get geriatric psychiatry recognized in that country. In Portugal, geriatricians are not really recognized as a specialty. Wow. One of the countries with the strongest recognition of psychology uh, with older adults is the UK, where for many years they had a very strong, and they continue to have a strong voice in their British Psychological Association, but also on a policy stage to underscore that the changing demographics in that country really meant that, for example, everyone needs to have a geriatric rotation. And that was only changed very recently, unfortunately, due to some cutbacks in the NHS. But um, there was this really strong feeling that geropsychology needs to be embedded completely within their national health service. Mm -hmm. So it really does vary quite a bit. Um, I think there are regions of the world where geropsychology is not as strong, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, but that's probably because of population demographics where you have AIDS and and other um, circumstances such that unfortunately not large numbers of people are reaching a longer life. And then there's countries like Asia, where um, the Asian countries are one of the fastest growing in terms of how long it's taken them to get to quite a large percentage of their population to be over 65. And this big growth spurt has meant that infrastructure hasn't really caught up with it. So, for example, in France, it took them 120 years to get to a certain percentage of the population to be over 65. And it took South Korea like only 20 years for the same Mm -hmm. change in population demographics to occur. And so, you know, that means then that, you know, who's taking care of older adults? Is it the state? Is it the family responsibility has really been left a little bit in limbo? And also in those societies, you have a shift from, you know, more traditional ways of, of families taking care of each other to more women, for example, working. And so, you know, the oldest son's daughter can't take care of the family. And, um, and now what are people going to do? So, um, yeah. so there's, you know, there's barriers and facilitators, you know, it's, it's all countries have a network in terms of who's paying for care. Is there a national health care system? Uh, what's the population demographics of the country? How well developed are not only geropsychology, but other specialties like geriatrics, geriatric psychiatry. And um, and also in Australia, the concentration of people in urban areas has often meant that um, a big barrier to access to clinical geropsychology has been distance um, because there just isn't 
a population in the interior to support that. Oh, okay. Are you seeing there more rural areas or it's or the population is more spread out? The population in Australia, about 80% of people live very close to the sea. They live in um, major urban areas like uh, Sydney, Melbourne, and, and my hometown, which is Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And uh, because Australia has large parts of the country that are very sparsely populated throughout its history, it's dependent on things like, for example, for schooling for children in the interior, they've had the, the school of the air. So people used to get airlifted textbooks and things like that. And of course, now um, everything is on the Internet. The same with medical services. So I've had some of my students join the Royal Flying Doctors to do clinical gero assessments of people in rural areas. But now telehealth and telemedicine is um, making a big difference there. And of course, the government is very interested in Australia in providing services to people, even uh, services to people in nursing homes in these areas. Mm-hmm. And gero psychologists are really uh, a part of this in the country. So it's so it's a good time to be technologically savvy in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can see that telehealth would make a huge difference. How long has telehealth, to your knowledge, been integrated or are they starting to use telehealth? How long has that been going on? I think it's been for about a decade, certainly very strong. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been quite a long time. Um, that it's been growing. And, um, and of course, you know, the, the psychological associations, uh, like in all countries, you know, have to keep up in terms of ethics and so forth. And it's, it is an interesting practice. So we, we have a telehealth training facility within our university, and it trains students not only to do practice over telehealth, but also to do interprofessional practice over telehealth. So we can have a speech evaluation, say of an older person with a stroke, and then have a clinical psych uh, consult if the person is depressed and all of it happens over telehealth. So the speech pathologist can analyze the recorded speech samples of the person to best give advice. And the psychology trainee can send over, uh, for example, a geriatric depression scale over the internet to mm-hmm. the person and um, and get data that way. So so it's cool. That is really cool. So I'm I'm wondering about cognitive assessments, how they go about doing those via telehealth. In the nursing home consults I've done over telehealth, you can do you can do everything from just, you know, sort of asking questions over telehealth, but that's just using it the way we're using it to talk to each other over a distance. I know that there have been some consult services where people have been able to use iPads to uh, discreetly record patient behavior if they have a question about why a person may be, say, for example, exhibiting uh, repetitive behavior or to illustrate a wandering behavior. And then you can play that to a consult team. And then, you know, it's like you've gotten a snippet of that behavior in real time instead of just having a verbal description from care staff. So there are a lot of integrative ways, interesting ways that you can use telehealth. There are other places that are using, actually getting into more robotics. So in Scandinavia, they have robots that can be placed with the people that live in more outlying areas and the robot can, and it looks like sort of a stick figure with an iPad for a face Mm -hmm. and the robot can 
ask the person how they're doing and can ask them to show the regional nurse, have you taken the, the medications that you've taken? But then the iPad can also serve as a, a means of communication with family or with, say, a psychologist who's working with the person. And to me, these kinds of devices are really important because it's not just a one way like I'm assessing the person. But if that device can help with alleviating social isolation, then it it speaks to one of the cores of uh, what we found as a discipline, which is that more socially isolated people are at greater risk for both depression and for things like dementia. So the technology is providing us a way to address that. Right. Wow, that is so cool. That is huge, addressing that issue of loneliness and social isolation. You mentioned a couple of barriers or things that have come up that are reasons why some countries might be slower to focus on mental health and aging population needs, not necessarily being there, being one of those, and then who is paying for the service. Have there been any other barriers that you think might be playing a role in that slower uptake of clinical geropsychology or the focus on mental health and aging? Uh, Yes. In my own research, I'm very interested in training issues. And uh, we offer, for example, at my university, the only named degree in clinical geropsychology uh, in Australia. And it's a little bit of an unfortunate, you know, not as many people take up that opportunity. Although I will say that over years, more and more students are interested in it. I think that there's two things at play there as barriers. Um, One is that people maybe aren't exposed to uh, thinking about older adults earlier in their undergraduate career as psychologists. You know, a lot of developmental psychology is still focused on children. And Mm -hmm. so when they get to making choices about graduate school, you know, older adults are maybe not as much on their mind. And um, I think, you know, Susan Krauss Whitburn and other people have spoken quite eloquently on this, but I do think that we need to have older adults more as a focus right from the beginning, probably even from high school in those areas that offer that. And we do offer psychology in high schools in Australia, and there needs to be some mentioning of older people. So we don't just think that psychology stops at age 50. Right. Absolutely. And then I think uh, the second uh, one is is how we train students to work with older adults. And um, some colleagues and I did a comparative study between Canadian, American, and Australian training programs. And what we found was that the programs really had more of a focus on assessment then intervention is a very kind of broad statement. And I think there's still a little bit of both in neuropsychology and clinical geropsychology of being the role of the psychologist is to identify deficits, but there's not as much emphasis put on rehabilitation or intervention that whether you're talking about depression or anxiety or cognitive deficits, that there's something that we can offer people, that it's not really just learning to live with those, but really that we can actively intervene. And we don't have enough research uh, with the oldest old, so people over 85, to say, do we need to refine our methods of working with that population to offer meaningful, reliable interventions for that group? Mm Mm-hmm. 
the study that you're talking about, is that the paper, I think it was published back in 2006. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. There were a couple of papers with Aaron Emery Tuberco and Candy Connard from Calgary, Canada, and um, and my own um, colleague, Teresa Scott, uh, here in Australia. So yeah, there were a couple of papers published on that training topic. Mm-hmm. And it's a really nice description of what I, you know, anecdotally have seen in the culture of clinical geropsychology with older adults. It would be interesting to see what that looks like maybe five or 10 years from now. Do you think that there would be a shift, more of a focus on therapy with older adults? Or do you think that the climate is still almost the same? Well, what I think is that in the field in general, there have been some really interesting, innovative ideas in terms of how to reach out to people. So, for example, the rise in using gaming to look at both cognitive functioning and um, depression. Mm. And so, you know, using something that people would would really like to engage with to get over that hurdle of, you know, how are we getting people to really follow through with any kind of intervention that that we're offering them. Right. Um, And the other thing I think is looking sort of at related fields. So I know I myself am doing some research on uh, using creativity to both work with people to maintain healthy aging, as well as using creative activities. So for example, singing, music, dance, with people who may have physical or cognitive limitations to help them regain functioning. But whether that's translated down into training programs, you know, training programs are, they have to fulfill uh, all across the world, you know, accreditation requirements. So I think training still lags a little bit behind contemporary clinical practice um, in terms of what it's offering for students. And that's why I think it's really important for those training programs to be training for the future, not even for the present, because you have to train practitioners who are really open to those new ways of practice. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. I was wondering about that as you were talking about all of the really cool technology use, it, the, the way that folks have been using technology. And I was curious if that had sort of trickled down to clinical practice outside of research and then, you know, wondering how long that might take to trickle down into training. Well, we've just done a survey in my uh, home state in Australia, which is Queensland, and we surveyed all of the providers of geriatric practice across nursing, physicians, occupational therapists, physical therapists, nutritionists and dietitians, social workers, and exercise physiologists. And it was a little bit discouraging because a lot of the training programs were saying, well, we just don't have enough room in the curriculum for older people and we're going by the accreditation guidelines. So that's enough. And, um, you know, I think it's the same everywhere. Just like in the United States, there are some training programs that really have a committed core of faculty that uh, push for GERO training. I think that's the same in Australia. So we did find pockets of programs where people were really committed and they were known for that. 
And I think that maybe to a certain extent, it'll always be that way because you need to have someone who's a champion. Even if the demographics are on your side, you still need someone inside, whether it's a service or whether it's a training program to be a champion for geriatrics and for servicing older adults. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like some of the facilitators, some things that have helped advance clinical psychology are these innovations with technology and having champions in the field of geropsychology really promote education and training in working with older adults and also having that need, the population need. Are there any other facilitators that you've come across or in your opinion, what do you think has helped advanced clinical geropsychology? Well, I think that People engaging in really high quality research in uh, clinical geropsychology and making sure they're including populations that are as old as possible in their samples so that we get a good idea of that um, is really key. I mean, sometimes it can be a barrier as well in that, you know, the obsession with randomized control trials sometimes makes it difficult to get research out there. And I do think that, you know, sometimes that can be hampering to the field. But, you know, getting research out there and really making that in a format where things are replicable and solid, that then does translate into uh, training programs. And the other thing is having it really with a focus on implementation. And I think Part of getting uh, research that's facilitating is having that implementation focus that includes some measure of co-design and whether it's co-design with whoever's going to have to deliver the service, co-design with older adults themselves to make sure that it really suits them and suits their contexts and needs. I think that that's critical because if you design something in a vacuum and you don't really co-design it with the people it's aimed at or the people who are going to deliver it, then it's really hard to implement it because the deliverers will say, oh, that's too expensive or it's too complex. And then older adults themselves will say they just, they'll vote with their feet and they won't be consistent with it. So I think the biggest advancement really for the research side is the element of implementation science and co-design. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a really good point. What do you envision or hope for for clinical geropsychology on this international stage? What changes do you think would need to happen to get us there? Well, I think that what we need is a broader coming together of the international geropsychology community. And I know that having trained in the United States, you know, the United States itself is such a wonderful, diverse big place that it can seem like even just getting from the East Coast to the West Coast is is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, um, and I know it's sometimes hard to travel to international arenas, but I do think that paying attention to what people are doing in other countries is really, uh, that has been a major focus in my current research and writings is to always make sure that I have that international perspective. I think even in just editing an article or a chapter, if you simply cite U.S. statistics, then anybody outside the country, it loses a certain amount of meaning for that population. So, you know, the number of people with dementia in the United States is a nice figure. But to put that in context, it is a good idea to like refer to U.N. or 
World Health Organization data that, you know, puts it in a broader context. Mm -hmm. And then to discuss, you know, how uh, the research plays out with a, a variety of groups. So you have minority groups, you have groups that have particular vulnerabilities or concerns like LGBTI communities. You have the whole issue of the one of the fastest growing aging populations is in indigenous communities. So indigenous communities in the States, in Canada, in Europe, in Japan, in Australia, New Zealand, all of these places have uh, indigenous communities that really are starting to catch up now in terms of lifespan and are finding that they don't have key services in place, uh, for example, for things like dementia care. So I think that my hope is that there's continued dialogue, cooperation, because I think that the statistics are quite stark, that we really don't have enough healthcare professionals trained to work with older adults, and we need to rely on each other and each other's research and practice to meet the needs of the older adult community. Yeah. I have to admit that I am not familiar with this. Is there a conference or something where geropsychologists or clinical psychologists can come together on a global scale now? Or is that something that we would need to put together for the future? So I think that there are a whole range of conferences, international organizations, and journals that have a more international focus and, in fact, an interprofessional focus uh, that can be extremely useful in bringing the clinical geroscite community together. So, for example, I've been a member of International Psychogeriatric Association for many years, almost 25 years. And uh, this is an organization that's an interprofessional organization. It has its headquarters uh, in the United States, but it's all of its work is certainly on an international scale. It has a particular interest in the developing world. The journal, International Psychogeriatrics, showcases work in terms of interventions, translational research, and assessment tools that have been adapted or developed overseas. And, um, you know, so both that journal and that organization, I can't speak highly enough of as something to turn to um, if you're looking for that kind of uh, focus. Mm -hmm. A really great conference internationally is International Association of Gerontology and Geriatrics, IAGG. They have an international conference every four years and regional conferences in between. I've just been to that conference in um, Gothenburg, Sweden. And I tell you that that conference every single day, there was something of amazing relevance for my work just mm -hmm. the entire time. Like it was just amazing. And hearing people from just all over the world and their amazing research, it was just fantastic. But we have things, you know, the GSA is recognized, you know, over the world as an excellent conference for people to come to. Um, so even though it's the Gerontological Society of America, Lots of international people show up at that conference because it is, again, interprofessional and, you know, just has an amazing program. Yeah. So I think uh, I think that there are um, a lot of ways that people can be alert to that literature. There's also international associations for psychology that have 
I know in the United States, we have uh, Division 12-2, the Society for Clinical Geropsychology uh, that's in the American Psychological Association and also Division 20, aging focused. And, you know, that's true. The British Psychological Society, the Australian Psychological Society, a lot of these societies have reciprocal agreements with each other. And so there's lots of ways to get involved in a national, you know, sense. But I think the main thing is if you're looking at doing research, that being aware of how you're writing, if you want this to be, you know, read by people outside of your country, you do have to be aware, you know, that you're not just citing the statistics or just have all those references from within that country. I know it's something that I say to my own students, you know, don't just cite Australian statistics, cite world statistics. And I think that if we keep doing that, um, we'll become automatically more international. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. I'm imagining that there's probably listeners who are graduate students or interns or fellows, residents who might be interested in getting involved on clinical geropsychology on an international level. And you've given some really great examples, some recommendations, tips, things that they can do to get involved internationally, like attending those international conferences, reading articles in these international journals, and perhaps even working with a mentor to review articles in international journals. For someone who is Let's say they're listening to this podcast episode and a light bulb has gone off. They realize that this is something that they really want to get into, but they have absolutely no direction, not a mentor who is involved internationally. What recommendation would you have for that person just getting started? Well, they can always send me an email. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I mean, I think it depends on what level of training you're at. Um, I know that I have a lot of students in Australia that also want to have a more international career. So what I recommend to my own students, and that's what I'd recommend to anybody listening to the podcast, is you can always start in a small way by just being more internationally aware and doing some reading. You can take a next step to try to find a mentor that is... Uh, hooked in internationally. And it is a genuine invitation if people would like to email me, um, because I have done some mentoring uh, internationally with people who are thinking of moving, for example, overseas. Oh, great. I, I will say that once you have your degree from your home country, it is amazingly exciting to spend even a few years uh, overseas. So from an undergraduate standpoint, there's lots of study abroad. And I I really credit my ability to be an international geropsychologist with having taken a semester off in college and studied, I studied in the UK at the University of Sussex. And it really opened my mind to the joys of, uh, of living uh, an international life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, taking those opportunities, even as an undergraduate, um, it's a little bit harder in graduate school to find an international experience that meets you know, accreditation and and credit requirements. And it is a little bit easier once you have whatever the equivalent of licensing is in your home country to then explore working overseas. So for example, most of my students like to travel to the UK. And so once they have their degree, 
while they're still in Australia, they can become a member of the British Psychological Society. And then that opens them up to traveling to the UK and working uh, as what they call a locum or just sort of temporary, taking temporary three or six month positions while people are on maternity leave or um, just on some sort of leave. And uh, some of those people have gone on to then, you know, relocate to the UK and, and live there permanently. Some people just work there for three or four years and then they come back to Australia and start a family. And the same is true in the United States. You can go, you just find out the what's required in various countries. So to practice in Australia, you have to obviously apply for your credentials to be recognized as a registered psychologist. Then you have to do um, a small amount of uh, supervised orientation to the practice environment, and then you can practice. And um, academic jobs, of course, provide an easy way of moving overseas because usually when you move for an academic job, you get at least permanent residency in the country for yourself and your partner um, so that then both people can live and work in the country. Those are really great recommendations, ones that I would not have thought of, but it sounds really exciting. And your own experiences have really been integral in being able to provide these recommendations to your students. I think that that's really, really great. I have to say that it's probably the best decision I ever made on a whim to leave (laughs) L.A. and uh, head off to beautiful New Zealand. And I would say that, you know, the world is getting more interconnected and being able to take advantage of of anything, even just experiencing an international conference. It will broaden your horizons and definitely have an influence on your practice. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to include some information in the show notes for this episode, including some of the articles that you mentioned or citations for those articles that you mentioned. And I'll also include your email for that wonderful, very generous invitation for folks to to email you if they have an interest in international clinical geropsychology. Thank you so much for being on, Nancy. This was really a lot of fun. Oh, Lindsay, it was really fantastic. I thank you so much for the invitation. And the Society for Clinical Geropsychology will certainly be promoting your wonderful podcasts very broadly. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can subscribe to the Geropsychology Podcast anywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to leave your ratings in the form of stars and comments. If you'd like to communicate with me directly, visit www.thegeropsychologypodcast.com and leave me a message. You can also follow me on Twitter at the Jero Podcast. <laughs>